Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. For years, law firms have had programs aimed at increasing diversity in their attorney ranks. But we've got some bad news. It's not working. Today, we're joined by senior reporter Natalie Rodriguez, who will tell us about the results of our latest survey of diversity at law firms and what experts say are the things that could actually move the needle on this issue. And stick around to the end of the show when we'll talk about a judge calling out the egregious behavior of a New York City real estate developer who demolished the famed graffiti space Five Points. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hello. <laughs> it's World Cup time, Bill. Nice. That was good. Yeah. I, like that. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure if it would well, land. But the good well, news even is... I got that reference good. in no right. sports. Yeah. We have a marquee matchup today. Well, uh, are, are you talking about the the clash of authoritarian regimes to kick off the uh, the tournament? I am. Yeah, Russia and Saudi. It's already in the books. It's over. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, Russia beat them five to nothing. Huh. Uh, Saudi Arabia was fielding one of the weakest sides in the entire tournament, and it uh, came to form today. I believe so, that. Um, do you now, you Amber? You have no interest, even 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 as like a cultural event. I, no, I mean it's firmly so, established. You don't care for sports. I, I regularly do this thing with my husband Andrew, where I say to him at various points during the year, like, "Hey, what happened with that thing?" Just because I like to yeah. know, so that I right. don't seem like an idiot. Right. Yeah. But I don't knower. actually want to watch what's happening. Yeah. I well, just kind of want to keep tabs on pr- big events. It's a particularly bad year for <laughs> casual fans. Ex- yeah, we were talking about that. The U.S. Yeah. didn't get in. But even if you're in, like, say, you know, I, I would say the two biggest fallback teams for, like, random people in the U.S. is Italy and Ireland. Given, There's a lot of... Given the ancestry. Of, right. There's a lot of Irish people, a lot here. of Italians. Yeah. Both of those teams didn't make it. Also Italy is sort it. of shocking that they didn't make it. Yeah. Uh, um, in, in, uh, in other World Cup news and veering into trade law with A-Law, wow. uh, okay. 2026... <laughs> Hated that. <laughs> uh, U.S., Canada, and Mexico won a sort of joint North American bid to host the 2026 tournament. And if you've uh, read anything about our, our, yeah, it's the NAFTA Cup. And I don't know if NAFTA's going to be around by the time Mm. that uh, comes around, if you've been paying attention to the trade beat. So, yeah, uh, wild stuff. Good luck to all the sides. All right, let's let's get into some more substantive matters. (laughs) Yeah, please veer us away from sports. Uh, So we had a few SCOTUS rulings this week, but I think the biggest ruling wasn't from SCOTUS. It was from a district judge in D.C. who approved the... $85 $85 billion merger of AT&T and Time Warner. Right. Yeah, that catches people right uh, right in the beginning because those are companies we all know. Most of us are customers of one or the other. Yeah, yeah. and $85 billion is yeah, nothing, to, nothing to sneeze at. So it, the, the judge shot down the, the, the government. You know, the government had moved to block it and, the, and yeah. said that it was bad for consumers. The judge disagreed. And already we've seen other big mergers in that space happening like in the days immediately afterwards so it's a, it's a it's a huge deal yeah this was a long time coming i think like like you say the the merger was announced a couple of years ago and then this whole legal yeah. battle uh you know came about uh let's 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 walk back and, and go from the beginning and see where we're at yeah so at&t back in 2016 agreed to buy time warner for 85 billion dollars um the deal would combine you know at&t is a huge player in the mobile space they own direct tv which is a big tv provider um it would combine them with a giant, giant content company. They own HBO. Yeah. They own Warner Brothers, the movie studio. They own uh, CNN. They own a lot of a lot of content. Yeah. The idea being that like they are both 
old legacy companies Mm -hmm. that are having a really hard time competing with companies like Amazon and Netflix and Hulu who are already integrated in this way. They're they're distributors like like AT&T, but they're also content companies the way that like a studio. So it's really hard for them to to compete with companies like that. So the the idea is we can put ourselves together and be sort of this nimbler combined company. Okay, but DOJ didn't like that. Didn't like it at all. Um, and right from the beginning, I think we should mention there was weird stuff with the idea that Trump hates CNN and that whether or not he had ordered them to dig into this. Oh, yeah. Eventually, that. that didn't play any part in this. The okay. judge said you can't bring up any sort of stuff like that during the during the trial. Yeah. But so the DOJ said that this would violate antitrust law, that mm-hmm. the basic argument was that AT&T, it would have an incentive to now that once it owned all that content – it would have an incentive because it owns DirecTV as well to charge higher prices to the TV providers, the Comcasts, the right. um, the Spectrums of the world yeah. that compete with DirecTV. They would charge them higher prices, uh, which which then those companies could either pass along to their to their consumers, which would lead to higher prices, yeah. or AT and T would black out those channels, which means the consumers would lose access to them entirely. If if TV providers played hardball, so sort of a lose lose was the argument for consumers. And we've seen this kind of blackouts before, where where things have happened with DirecTV or like you right. said, like Comcast or someone else in a dispute like this. Right. And so where where the judge come out? On right. This? So we had a long, we had like a six week trial that was a big deal. A lot of people watching it. Um. And uh. But so it, I think it should be said for context that it was kind of weird for the DOJ to oppose this kind of merger. Yeah. In in situations of what's called horizontal integration, like say uh, AT&T wanted to buy Verizon. Yeah, competitors. And it's removing someone from, from the market. Mm-hmm. Th- that's a classic situation where you don't want these two companies combining to become a monopoly in one industry. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's where the DOJ gets really concerned about things like how many other competitors are left exactly. and like a number one and a number three combined. Right. Kind so of they thing. block those all the time yeah. and judges uphold them blocking those all the time. Yeah. What this is is vertical integration, a vertical merger. Mm-hmm. The idea being that they're two different companies but they don't do the same thing. They're in the same ecosystem and they sort of play complementary roles to each other but they don't do the same thing. So it's a sort of different idea and the DOJ, for the most part, lets those kind of mergers go through. Right. So it was sort of weird that they – it was sort of an expansive idea that they were going to go and that block you would even, yeah, this one. So in, that in, one. in that context, the ruling that came down this week that said the merger was fine to go forward was kind of the judge just going back to the status quo, the, the antitrust law status quo on, on these vertical mergers, which is that a lot of the times they create more sort of pro-competitive stuff than whatever – anti-competitive damage they do. Right. Um, so the judge, Richard Leon, uh, he said the deal that would, would like, he basically agreed with their arguments that that they need this deal to actually be competitive. That, yeah. That uh, it, they would be, it would be uncompetitive to not let them do it. Right, because yeah, right. otherwise, like, the Netflix of they the world They would start getting beaten out by gonna, these yeah. other companies that are already vertically integrated you're allowing, in the same way that the DOJ is telling them they can't do. You're allowing for a new player in this, like, quickly emerging market. Exactly. Yeah. So, and as for the government's sort of core argument that that AT&T would have the ability to charge more for all that Time Warner content, mm-hmm. the judge said that's harder to do than the DOJ is making it out to be. That, you know, that, that these... That if you black out your 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 content, it's a huge damaging blow for the for company you. that's doing yeah. it too, because you make so much of your money from from advertising and from oh, sure. everything else. So it's not this like thing that you could just. It's it's much harder for them to go out there and exert that 
that force in the market than mm. the DOJ had given them credit for. So that wasn't as much of a like countervailing idea here. And you said this has already had ripple effects in the market. What what have we seen happen? Yeah. So I mean, the the, the immediate idea was that like a lot of other companies would like to do this, but they mm-hmm. were watching to see what would happen with this kind of you know whether or not the DOJ was going to start going after these vertical mergers. Yeah. And uh, you know, the judge, when he issued the ruling, was he, he had this line. It was one of his exclamation points. Yeah, lines. right. <laughs> judge is kind of a weird guy and used a lot of exclamation points in the ruling. It's just a weird little side note in this otherwise very, very interesting story. Check Bill's Twitter feed on that. He, he excerpted a good little uh, there. But so the judge like pleaded with everyone to be like, listen, this doesn't have broader implications. It's just this case. That's all we're doing. <laughs> but clearly that's not the case. That's not how any of this stuff works. Right. So yeah. just a day after the ruling, Comcast uh, put in a... $65 billion bid to buy a bunch of assets from 21st Century Fox. Mm-hmm. You may remember Disney has already bid for those same assets. So that's going to set off a war about which of them is going to is going to buy up. And, and again, that would be Comcast is a giant. I mean, Comcast has already sort of integrated this way. But Well, well and, and the Comcast Fox thing was like that was like in the ether for a long time. And the, right. and the, and the conventional wisdom was they were holding off on until, until a ruling like this got Well, out. and they, they actually, they're a publicly traded company. They said that was why they were waiting. Mm-hmm. So, um, and a lot of people think that that's going to be sort of the first of many. That mm-hmm. um, Chelsea Naso, our lead M&A reporter here at Law360, wrote a really great feature about how, like I said, a lot of other companies are feeling the same pressure of wanting to compete with the Amazons and the Hulus and the Netflix, um, but that they didn't know whether or not they could. And now that, that this ruling is really clear and is out there that this is okay, we're going to see, um, you know, we're going to see a lot of people jump back in and a lot of, you know, it could really remake the entertainment and telecom world in the next few years. Well, while we, uh, while we await the future of, uh, you know, content mills uh you know the churn goes on we have more grist for the content mill right now and by that i mean uh the president got sued again can't imagine for what (laughs) uh yeah another day another lawsuit against our sitting president donald trump uh this time the new york attorney general's office um is suing trump and his three eldest children for using the trump foundation this is not to be confused with the trump organization the trump foundation is nominally a charity fund and uh the new york attorney general said that the trumps were basically using the foundation as a as a direct quote a personal checkbook to kind of address legal threats against Trump and kind of just engage in some uh, shady self-dealing. Ooh, uh, when you say personal checkbook, like they're not <laughs> mincing any words there. What happened? Like, yeah. What are the allegations? So it, it, it's like whenever you deal with laws governing like the use of charities and money, it gets like really weedy. But what you have to know about the suit, again, is brought by uh, acting New York Attorney General Barbara Underwood. Um, there are a patchwork of laws that basically like put tight restrictions on exactly how charitable foundations can operate and what they can use their money for. Sure. It's often restricted to just charitable activities. That makes sense. It, it, yeah, it, uh, it makes a, it makes a sort of sense. And so, um, basically what this lawsuit is alleging is that the Trump foundation did a number of things, uh, that, that run afoul of these, uh, of these laws. And it came after like a long investigation into all kinds of payments made by the foundation that actually that actually stretches back to sort of the most heated part of the 2016 presidential campaign. Um, they're asking for about $2.8 million in penalties and a ban on both Trump and his children from uh, heading up 
uh, New York-based nonprofits for uh, for several years. Okay. What? Yeah, that's a lot of money. And I think I remember some of the more sort of flamboyant things that are now part of the suit. But can you walk us through some specifics? Yeah, there's, I mean, uh, if you have time to go read a 40-page complaint uh, about the Trump Foundation, you definitely should do it. Um, the most interesting thing and probably the most, like, politically heated thing now that he's uh, president is the allegation that during the 2016 election, the Trump Foundation was essentially working as an arm of the actual campaign itself. Um, oh. The suit cites emails from campaign officials, like apparently directing money to be made uh, for like political donations in Iowa just a few days before uh, the presidential caucus is there. And to be clear, this doesn't have anything, this doesn't have any election like financing at angle to it right like it, it no that I, would be the purview of of another of presumably another type of lawsuit well yeah no i mean th there are some camp i mean there are allegations that like campaign finance law was like skirted here but the whole point is charitable donations are not supposed to be engaged in political activities or right. political funding that's the point um some of the other things uh are <laughs> range from so, some of them go like way far back to like 2007 and 2012 long before he was um uh entertaining serious political ambitions but like uh there was a guy who sued trump because he made a hole in one at one of his golf tournaments that was supposed to have like a million dollar reward and, oh, and, I remember trump, that. and trump didn't pay and so he sued the guy and then again a court this is all alleged in the lawsuit Money was funneled through the Trump Foundation, a charitable organization, to pay the guy like $150,000 to drop the lawsuit. Uh, in another of the more colorful uh, allegations, the Trump Foundation uh, proffered about $10,000 for a portrait of Donald Trump. Oh, I remember this. That I was remember event. reading yeah, about it. The Washington Post did a lot of yeah. coverage that found its way yeah, into it this lawsuit. David Fahrenheit, right? Yeah. Like he's been doing this exactly. for... Exactly. And yeah. it's... It, that a, lot of, a lot of those things basically serve as like a rough draft of this of this complaint now. Um, but yeah, and then that that portrait was eventually hung in one of the... Tr was found hanging... Like in a golf club, in, right? in one of his golf clubs. Uh, made a, a... Again, allegedly a $25,000 contribution to uh, re-elect the uh, Florida Attorney General who was thinking about getting on board the Trump University lawsuit at the time again all funneled through the trump foundation now pretty just, unseemly just stuff, this yeah. is sort of an aside but what was the money nominally being given for like what were the charities that this money was going to? well, well like the or, or what, what were they telling donors that well, the money was going to well that's the thing it's like well for example the guy the guy who sued him over the hole in one thing had his own foundation uh -huh. so and like in a lot in a lot of ways like um i mean i'm not like uh, like totally in depth on what uh, like what kind of like shell corporations or anything right. were set up like that. But like, I know that the guy who sued him for the hole in one thing, like had set up a foundation and technically like it was a donation from one foundation to another foundation, right. which is allowed. But when you look at the, it's all about the context. Sure. It was like, it was perceived as a pay for play kind of sure. thing. Yeah. So like the payments were always like nominally above board, like when when you look at yeah. his lines on a spreadsheet, but not when you examine the context in which they occurred. I gotta get some shell corporations. I feel like you can get a lot of mileage out of them just for different things. Wait, they don't... do come up on the Per Se podcast a lot. Right. Yeah. But that should also indicate exactly why you shouldn't, because they come up on the Per right. Se podcast in lawsuits a lot. My favorite thing that that came out in the in the um uh part of like the narrative of the complaint is like they're trying to sort of paint this like very chaotic portrait of uh 
of the way that the Trump Foundation is run. Yeah. And um, there's a guy, uh, his name is Alan uh, Weisselberg, and he was uh, he was informed, uh, he was nominally listed as the treasurer of the Trump Foundation, but he was not made aware of that fact until federal <laughs> investigators told him that. <laughs> they were, they, Can you imagine? They were like, depo- or they, well, they weren't deposing him yet, but they were, they were investigating him, and he didn't know. He works for the Trump Organization, which is a for-profit uh-huh. business organization. Wait a minute, I'm what? Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, that's, that's to, have, to have the complaint. All right, so I have to think that that <laughs> that the president has taken this very graciously. Um, <laughs> he's not not commenting on pending litigation, and <laughs> we will wait for a favorable outcome. No, you're wrong. Uh, uh, you're wrong again. No, uh, he took to Twitter as we've I've lost track of the number of times we've done this, but um, you know, fresh off his uh, Singapore swing, he came back and he. Immediately leapt on Twitter just minutes after this complaint was made public and said it was sort of a very transparently political ploy run run by, quote, sleazy New York Democrats <laughs> to uh, sort of undermine nice. uh, his, his presidential authority. And he said he had, I, I will not settle, exclamation point, he said. <laughs> uh, for what it's worth, he also said he wouldn't settle the Trump U investigation. He eventually settled that, but in any case. Um, he also took a shot, of course, at uh, now disgraced uh, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, uh, who, again, left office after uh, the allegations surfaced that he had physically assaulted several romantic partners. Right. Because, like I said, this thing traced back a couple of years. Sure. I'm sure this was the, pro- the work product of, of yeah. the Schneiderman and, era. Yeah. And so the direct quote from Trump is that Schneiderman, and now the quote begins, uh, never had the guts to bring this ridiculous case, which lingered in their office for almost two years. Now he resigned his office in disgrace, and his disciples brought it when he would not settle, so, or when when we would not settle. So uh. apparently, it's all this like he can't. It's like he can never really resist, like just like drumming up like fanning the political fire. So other than this, just being very interesting because right. it's a sitting president and a case against him. Um, are there any takeaways we should know from this? I mean, what should we? What What are our lessons? Other here, than Alex? the fact that New York Democrats are in fact sleazy. sleazy. Uh, yeah, I mean. I remember we talked about it in, in our year-end show. Remember we did that whole thing about, like, the unprecedented, like, wave of litigation against a sitting president, yeah. which sure. we had never really seen anything like that before? And I was just thinking back to, you know, in the early days of his presidential campaign, and people thought that, you know, even putting his politics aside, taking this kind of path to politics through, like, real estate and finance mm-hmm. and all kinds of commercial branding all across the globe, like, a candidate like that who does that instead of just going through public service is inevitably going to invite more scrutiny and likely more legal action. Sure. Yeah, there's not a lot to sue a community organizer over. Right. But and there's I mean, lots of like Obama, complicated dealings that yeah. Trump has had. I mean, Obama got named like by name in a bunch of like crazy lawsuits that were like almost always like, you know, handwritten pro se or whatever uh-huh. um, and never really got ground. This is the New York Attorney General's office, quite a different beast entirely. Right. So anyway, all this is to say, a long way to say, that this conventional wisdom of um, a person like this holding this office is just going to inevitably, you know, attract more legal attention. And we're seeing that kind of taking root here. Despite decades of industry-wide initiatives to boost diversity, movement up the partnership ladder has stagnated for minority attorneys. According to our latest survey of the largest U.S. law firms, attorneys of color make up a tiny percentage of law firm partners, and it's a number that hasn't budged in years. Today we're joined by senior reporter Natalie Rodriguez to tell us why the situation for minority attorneys has become so intractable, 
and what those who have reached the highest ranks of law firms say was their path to success. Welcome, Natalie. Hi, thanks for having me. Natalie, joining us again with another uplifting story. Yes. (laughs) We had you on for the glass ceiling report. Now just things are good at big law. (laughs) It's basically become my beat. Right. (laughs) Well, let's get into that because we do put out uh, a bunch of these reports, glass ceiling that Bill mentioned, but also diversity snapshot is the one where we survey minority attorneys at law firms. Can you give us an overview of what we found this year? Yeah. So what we found is what we've kind of been finding for the last four years, Um, you know, when and when we talk about minorities, we're talking about racial minorities in in this particular survey, um, and that's you know in general, you know certainly a, a group whose presence needs to be worked on. You know, in law schools, they make up about twenty percent, twenty thirty percent of law school students over the last few decades. Um, but you know, when we're looking at the numbers in big law, the numbers are even worse. Um, you know, the the snapshots reveal that just over 15% of attorneys and just about 9% of partners are law, in law firms are minorities. Um, and it, these are numbers that haven't really been budging in the four years that we've been doing them. For instance, um, it's taken uh, about four years t- for the equity partnership numbers to budge from 7.1 to 8.2%. Wow. So yeah. it, it's, it's just real yeah. slow well, growth. W- w- and we talked about it during the glass ceiling report about gender equality in firms, and that was very small growth, but at least there was growth. Here, yes. here it's, yeah. it's literally here, static. Here's, it's, right. it's pretty stagnant, yeah. which is kind of amazing considering, you know, this has been an issue that law firms have been thinking about for years. I mean, that's really what I wanted to dig into a little bit with you. Basically, like, what gives? I mean, it seems like every law firm we talk to has a program in place where they're trying to address diversity. Um, there's a million different work groups about this. And, and it seems like we've talked about this for years, but obviously the numbers aren't reflecting Right. That. Does this stuff just not work? Like, is it is it truly just something they say on paper that just doesn't work? So as part of this report, I spoke with five really high-level um, attorneys at different firms. Um, and by high-level, I mean not just equity partners, but people on the governing committees mm-hmm. of these law firms um, and who have generally been on the, you know, kind of in the forefront of making these initiatives and talking about these issues for their firms. And even they, they're, they're you know, they're all so surprised almost that, that it's still taking so long for any movement to be had um, and you know the, the, they, they all wish that it would be further along and they they say that you know the the programs that have been placed are helpful to a certain extent but there's certainly not enough and they that the industry really needs to um, take a, a, a step back and, and, and try to look at different ways to approach the situation. And you said you'd talk to a handful of attorneys in leadership positions about this problem. Can you share some of those specific insights with us? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think Justin Pierce, who's uh, an African-American partner at Venable and and chair of the firm's IP division, perhaps summed it up best when he spoke to me just about, you know, what the the firms need to do in terms of more follow through and and getting more creative. A smart and as intelligent and as highly analytical as law firms and the people in them can be, um, they're often very anachronistic, very conservative, and not sort of uh, quick to sort of lead the charge when it comes to to social change within their firms or with respect to just, you know, having the makeup of the law firm reflect society. So it sounds like this is in part just this intractable problem, not just at law firms, but in society at large, and we're just seeing it reflected in big law. 
It's it's interesting. I, I feel like I make some version of this point every time we talk about whether we're talking about gender diversity or racial diversity, where it's like, and that's what that's what Justin was talking about there, where it's like these are these are people who's like their job is to solve problems, you know, yeah. and they're 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 highly educated people. Well, if you're a Fortune who, 500 company, your diversity <laughs> initiative was probably written by a lawyer. That's a good for point. One of these firms. So it's it's interesting just that that you know that it is such a difficult problem to solve in your own house. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, th- in some ways, you know, they, they find themselves throwing up their hands, but but then they 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 they're trying to now, you know, lead new initiatives. You know, uh, Natalie Pierce, who is a shareholder at Littler, um, and a Latina, you know, she's been very um, very vocal about using her position to get resources to new programs. Right. Uh, she's been at the f- forefront of the firm's uh, career advocacy program, which has really helped to significantly. Um, put in more diversity, racial, gender, et cetera, into their associate ranks and into the associate to partner ranks. So let's actually piggyback off of that a little bit where you brought up um, someone who is both a racial minority and a woman. I know you did some reporting on that intersection and how it can be even worse for those women. Can you tell us a little bit about what they were telling you? Yeah, it's it's some hard numbers (laughs) when you look at minority women, um, you know, especially because Women in general have been making up 40 and almost nearly half of the the associates coming into big law for years now. Um, but minority women and women of color make up just 8% of attorneys. And that comes goes down to 3% at the partnership uh, level. That's very at, the low. at like the onboarding, it's 8%? Yes. Wow. Yeesh. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's some very, um, very sad numbers, to be honest. Um, And, you know, so I spoke with several minority women um, across ranks, uh, again, from associates to partnership level. And, you know, they were talking to me about um, that they're aware of this. You know, a lot of them had women of color peers in in law school who chose very different routes. Um, You know, part of it is the billable hours and competitive nature of big law that we've seen in general kind of deter some women from from coming into the private practice, you know, and, and opting for perhaps better work-life balance and in-house positions yeah. and government jobs. Um, but, but I think a larger part of it when it comes to women of color is that it, it it's kind of this almost self-defeating cycle where women of color don't see themselves represented at higher ranks right. in law yeah. firms. Yeah. So they don't see a path. And since they do see people that look like themselves doing well in government positions or in-house positions, they don't necessarily have the desire to be the trailblazers. The right. snake is eating the tail. Yeah. So is that part of what we should be getting at here where there are di- diversity programs at all of these firms, but we're not seeing the numbers move? Maybe we should be looking at softer causes like that where visibility is actually part of what the solution could be here. Yeah, for the for the few women that I spoke with who have obviously found a home at, at big law and, and in, in, in law firms, um, you know, some of the top things that, that really stood out for them was were firms that did have uh, gender or racial diversity at top ranks, where they could see themselves in there, even if they didn't necessarily see uh, a woman of color in the position, if they saw a woman or an attorney of color, they saw themselves being able to make that rise. Right. Um, you know, other things that that really, uh, you know, made a difference for them was having a voice at the table um, and having advancement opportunities. You know, I, 
one uh, attorney that I spoke with uh, who is African-American and um, had been actually working in Canada. And she, she you know, she helped uh, the firm that she now works with on, on a project. And she was so struck by the fact that women were having a very, you know, high level roles in the project in, in, that she was working on that she wanted to come to this firm. Yeah, right. some of it's a little bit of a, like, if you see it happening, you believe that you can be part of that, too. Exactly. So that's great for women of color, but also probably any diverse attorney seeing someone in a leadership role. Um, I know you talked to several minority attorneys who had actually made it to the highest levels of their firms. They were in sort of the, the governing bodies at, at several law firms. So they obviously made it. What can we learn from those people? What did you take away from them? So a lot of these attorneys, I have to say, were very big self-starters. You know, yeah. they went into you kinda, their... Well, I mean, from what you're saying, it sounds like you have to be. Exactly. you got to take some initiative there. Exactly. You know? So they went in and they were auto, auto, automatically gunning for positions uh, on, you know, committees and, and mm-hmm. for high-level tasks. Um, but even they, you know, I, I, I feel like uh, so often I heard from almost every one of them that even they often came to a point where they hesitated to put themselves out for a position. Um, And in each of those instances, there was someone at a higher level who reached out to them and who really, you know, gave them a nudge. You know, Natalie Pierce, uh, before she she took a a seat on the board, uh, the day that the nominations were due for, you know, for someone to take the seat, a, a superior called her and was like, are you going to do this? I need you to do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you really need a mentor that's sort of on your side. Mentors, yeah. yeah, yeah, and, like and you, I think you, you need people uh, at the higher levels just paying attention to who has um, the skill set and, and the ambition and, and the, 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 the talent to rise up and then making sure that they're being seen. Yeah, I think you um, talked to one of these attorneys who talked about sort of starting the farm team even earlier. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, so often um, I I heard time and again that, you know, women of color and attorneys of color don't necessarily see private practice attorneys in their regular life. Yeah. Um, You know, so Kellyanne Cartwright, who is a uh, partner at Holland Knight, she, you know, she she spoke with me about how we have to, to go into the schools. I think that we have to do a little bit more outreach. We have to go to the schools. We have to we have to inform young people that a career in law would be a good career, that it would be a rewarding career, um, both personally and financially. That's the only way, really, to increase the numbers. Um, I can't think of any other way. Yeah, that's a bit sobering to think that we really need to start bottom up to get the numbers changing the way that everybody would like to see them change. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's more that uh, I, I think almost that you have to attack it from all sides, um, you know, right. from from the top uh, in terms of leaders, you know, taking an interest in up and coming attorneys and, and from the bottom at, at, at the law school level. All right, attorneys at your firm, that's your call to action here. We'd love to see these numbers higher next year. Thanks for explaining it all, Natalie. Thanks for having me. end our show with something offbeat and bill i think we have an update on one of the cases you've been tracking we do 
I think I think a good way to start this is just to say that as a like a, a general rule, if you're trying a case before a federal judge, you don't want like anything that you do during the case to quote get stuck in the craw of the judge. I, that's no. a solid rule for all our listeners. Just, I think that's in yeah. the federal rules of civil procedure. Yeah, 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 yeah. No uh-huh. cross sticking, yeah. isn't that right? So we have an update. Uh, everyone may remember a few uh, a few months ago we talked about the destruction of Five Points, which yes. was that that graffiti mecca in mm-hmm. Queens mm-hmm. here in New York. And uh, the developer who tore it down back in 2013 was found to have violated this sort of obscure federal law that protects art from mutilation and destruction and everything else. Right. This is the one where he went in and like whitewashed as soon as he Yeah, exactly. That and, he, yeah. he didn't tear it down for another year after he did it. He just destroyed them to destroy them. Yeah. Right. Uh, and they're giant like bajillion dollar condos now, which is very funny. But yeah. uh, so the... This week, the the developer, Jerry Wolkoff, uh, moved for a new trial, or okay. he had moved for a new trial. This week, the judge rejected that. Okay. But it was this sort of extraordinary, when you read a ruling from from a judge where you can tell the judge is furious, and they, like, <laughs> point by point I love it. make a... Yeah. So it was amazing. Just to begin with, they the judge wrote a 45-page thing where he explained in detail wow. why he wasn't granting a new trial for every single piece of art that was at issue in the case. Wow. Wrote a big thing about how this wasn't necessary, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, just like, to like, how mad do you have to be? I mean, judges, we regularly talk about them being overburdened. Right. You have to be really ticked off to go to this episode. Yeah, I mean, retrial opinions are, are generally pro forma. I mean, Well, because like, yeah. there's a lot of deference to the original. Yes, it has sure. to be this exceptional reason for why you would get a new trial. So, yeah. What kind of stuff was he saying? In well, so, the, I mean, the ruling was peppered with all sorts of stuff where he was talking about Wolkov's egregious behavior, that he had been reckless and irresponsible. But the real key here was that – so in 2013, but when he whitewashed the place, You're right. the artists who sued and who eventually won, they went to court and asked for a preliminary injunction to block him from doing anything. Mm-hmm. That it would have it enjoined him from tearing down the art. Yeah. Temporarily. And Wolkov said, if you do that, I'm going to lose my investors. I need to tear the building down. And this is, it's an issue of me destroying the building. And if you issue this injunction, it's going to cause me a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the the balancing act that goes into mm-hmm. anything like this, the judge said, okay, well, the artist may win this case, but I can't in good faith block this developer from using his private property to do something with. Mm-hmm. So he didn't grant the injunction. Walkoff went and whitewashed the, the everything in the building and the rest is history. And here mm-hmm. we are. But what came out later was that the demolition, as I said, didn't happen immediately after the the, the injunction. So, so it really so, felt to everybody like he went in and whitewashed up spite, correct? Because he could, right? But so the key what the key here is that he lied in court, or according to the judge, he misrepresented in court his intentions about that he yeah. needed that why he needed right. for there to not be an injunction that even and so it was this it was this sort of crazy thing that the judge discovered that the guy had essentially told him a lie to get this ruling that then allowed him to go destroy everything. So um, so the judge said, it simply stuck in my craw that I was misled that the demolition of the buildings was imminent when there was not even an application for a demolition permit. I was appalled at this conscious material misrepresentation. Yikes. So it was just it like, and he went into this big long thing about why then did I turn against him four years later after the extensive three-week trial the answer is that in addition to his incredible rationales for immediately whitewashing the plaintiff's artwork, 
I found out at trial that Wolkhev had misled me at the preliminary injunction hearing. So it was, and he said, he said as much that I would have issued an injunction if I had known what was, right. what was happening. So it was this remarkable thing where a judge was so clearly upset with a litigant. Like we see judges get heated, but yeah. this idea of a judge like really being like, how dare you do this in my courthouse? So the judge, he, he takes his craw very seriously. So looking forward, uh, there is a pending motion for like $2.5 million oh. in attorney's fees. Okay. Um, oh, nice. Well. So it, the, the language here does not bode well for what the judge is going to do on, on that pending motion. So nice. we'll see. That'll wrap up our show for today. Thanks, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Later. We'd also like to thank our producers today, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Natalie Rodriguez. Contributing reporters, Matt Perlman, Brian Koenig, Pete Brush, Chelsea Naso, Jackie Bell, and all the other staff members that helped with our diversity snapshot report. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, check out our website at law360.com podcast. That's also where you'll find that diversity snapshot report. I encourage everybody to go check that out. If you like the show, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find us. Thanks, and join us again next week.